You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I'm grateful that you're here. I know that Super Bowl Sunday is a Sunday where lots of people like to skip church, and well, I'm glad that you're here. I will warn you, though, if I see you coming at me with Gatorade, I will go the other way, okay? Just so we're all on the same page. Not going to do that today. Well, I do want to draw attention to our time of giving. If you are led to give, you can give in a variety of ways to support the mission here at Holmes Avenue. You can see on the screen, you can give by scanning that QR code. You can give over text. You can give online. You can give as you exit. However you choose to give, I want to encourage you to give and support the mission of God here at Holmes Avenue. Today, we're going to be continuing our sermon series in the book of Acts. We're actually going to be finishing up the third missionary journey of Paul. And I've titled today's sermon, Discovering God's Will. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through 16. And I think this is a huge question we have as believers, just as people. How do we know what is the right thing to do, the right choice to make? How do we discover God's will in any given situation, in any given moment? This is something that we wrestle with and As we consider to think about this, uh, there's a joke that I heard a few years ago that I think is appropriate to make light of how we act in this scenario. The joke goes, there's a man walking alongside a river, and he slips and falls in, and as he falls in, he cries out, God, save me. I have faith in you. I trust that you'll rescue me. And as he's in the water, splashing, trying to survive, a rowboat comes by. And the guy in the rowboat says, hey, you need some help. Here's a life preserver. And the guy says, no, no, no. God is going to save me. I pray to him. He's going to rescue me. So the guy in the rowboat keeps on going. A few minutes later, a speedboat comes through and he sees that he needs help. And he throws out a life preserver and says, grab on. I'll pull you aboard. And the man keeps splashing and saying, no, no. I've prayed to God to save me. He's going to rescue me. Finally, the Coast Guard shows up in a helicopter. They've heard reports of a man drowning, and they're trying to rescue him. A guy winches down to pull him out of the water, and he swats his hands away and says, No, no, God is going to rescue me. Well, the man drowns, gets before the Lord in heaven, and he looks at him and says, God, I have faith in you. I trust in you. I trusted you to rescue me. Why didn't you rescue me? And God, being the God of the universe, looks at him and says, Well, I sent two boats and a helicopter. What more was I supposed to do? It's a joke, I recognize, but that shows us some of the tension we have in discovering God's will, isn't it? See, this man who was drowning is crying out to God saying, rescue me. And God put things in position to rescue him, to pull him out of this water. Yet his problem was, is it did not look like what he thought God's rescue plan should look like. This leads us into this reality as we think and wrestle with God's will, If we're trying to discover God's will, we have to address the reality that sometimes it looks different than we expect. Sometimes it's not how we would create and order things. Sometimes it just is not what we would choose if we could be completely honest, right? If we could just be honest with one another, we would say, this might be God's will for me, but I'm not thrilled about his choice. What do we do with that? How do we wrestle with that? Well, today I think we see Paul wrestling with What is God's will? We see others around him wrestling with what is God's will. They're trying to determine what is the right thing to do. Where do we go from here? And just like us, 
Some of them, they get it right. Some of them, they get it wrong. And as we look at this, I think that we'll draw some principles forward by the end of this that will help guide us in determining God's will. How do we understand and know God's will? As we look at this section of Scripture, you'll see that we've got verses 1 through 16. And because it's a little lengthier, I won't ask you to stand. I'll read as we go. But as you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to write this down. Our first point is our view of God's will. Our view of God's will. Look with me at verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Petraea. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we came inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So as we start right here, I want to make sure we have our orientation, we know where we're going. As I said earlier, we're right here at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Paul's just a few weeks away from Jerusalem at this point, and as we're getting close to the end here, we're, we're going to come upon some tension in our story, in our passage of Scripture. Now, where is Paul right now? Well, he's coming from Ephesus. He is going down the coast of Turkey as we know it. And so he's sailing through the Mediterranean. And as he's going along, things are going fine so far until they get to Tyre. This is where we're going to encounter some of this tension beginning to boil over for Paul and for those around him. Look with me at verse 4. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. So right here is where we begin to have our first bit of tension for Paul. It says here that Paul enters the city and he spends several days here encouraging disciples as he has wont to do. And things seem to be going well. Yet, these disciples give him this message, the first time we've seen on Paul's journey, of telling him to stay away from Jerusalem. You see, they are telling Paul that you do not need to go to Jerusalem. Paul has been made known by the Spirit that he should go to Jerusalem. And as he goes, we see this back in Acts 20, as he goes to Jerusalem, every time he's going to go, every place he's going to go, he's going to experience hardship and difficulty. He knows that when he goes to Jerusalem, there is danger that awaits him. He doesn't know if his story is going to end there. He doesn't know if he's going to die in the hands of the, the Gentiles, the Roman authorities. He knows none of that. But what he does know is the Spirit has told him to go to Jerusalem and by the way, things are going to be tough for you when you get there. So Paul, walking in faith, trusting in the Lord, says, I'll go. I'll go. And up until this point in the story, things have been fine. As we go through the book of Acts so far, from Acts 20 to now, everyone's blessed them. Everyone said wonderful things until this moment. See, this is hard for Paul because he feels this weight, this pressure upon him to go to Jerusalem. But it's further complicated because the text here tells us that the Christians entire also felt they were being led by the Spirit. This is why they said, don't go to Jerusalem. Now, this comes to an obvious question and tension for us here that I've seen many commentators debate as I prepared for this Sunday. 
that brings to the question is, is Paul making the right choice? Is he making the right choice by going to Jerusalem? Or are these Christians that he's encountering who say they're being led by the Spirit? I mean, this is in God's Word. Luke is writing there, led by the Spirit to say this. Is this intended to serve as a warning to him of, I'm reminding you, Paul, things are going to be hard when you get there. Or is this intended to pull him away from this path of wrongness that he's on? Now, as we consider this question, you and I probably have varying viewpoints on this. Some of us may think that Paul's in the right and he's just following God's will. Others might think that he's perhaps out of line and that these disciples are trying to encourage him to get back into the right path before the Lord. This leads us to some tension as we try to discover God's will. If we've ever sought counsel and tried to think through what is the right choice for us as Christians, you've probably encountered some of this tension, right? You've had one group of people tell you, that's a great idea. You should absolutely do it. And then you've had another group of people, perhaps not this extreme, go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You should not do that. We live in that tension sometimes of that advice. What do we do here? How do we answer this question? How do we tackle this moment for Paul? Well, I I think that as we look at this, I think, one, we want to lean into this reality that I would submit to you. I'm working from the perspective that I believe Paul was being led by the Holy Spirit. I don't believe that Luke was lying to us. I don't believe the Bible's contradicting itself. I believe that when Luke wrote back in Acts 20 that the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul to go to Jerusalem, he told him to go. And so he's listening to him. And that these Christians, what they are doing being led by the Spirit is offering warning to Paul, reminding him to count the cost on this journey. This really kind of brings some echoes to mind of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem for Holy Week. If you remember those passages of Jesus knowing what's going to come and he knows what awaits him, yet he goes willingly. I believe Paul's being reminded here that he must count the cost in following God's will. As we consider that idea, you and I recognize that it does cost something to follow God, doesn't it? You know, when Jesus tells us in Matthew 4 that we're to follow him and he will make us into fishers of men, that implies, that tells us that if we follow him, if we walk closely to him, things are going to change in our lives. He's going to make us, shape us, transform us into the people he wants us to be, that is, fishers of men, but also change will come in our lives. If you can look back and if you remember that day when you became a believer, is your life drastically different from that moment to now? Let's say it should be. There should be a remarkable change in how you live, how you think, and how you act. That's that transformation. But that transformation is costly. Even as a young believer, when I first came to faith, I lost friendships and relationships because of my faith in Christ. People who refused to interact with me because I didn't want to walk the path they were walking. We've experienced that. Now, yes, that's a minor cost, but it is a cost, isn't it? Paul's experiencing something much greater that he recognizes that his life is on the line here. And he is trying to wrestle with and determine, am I faithfully listening to you? Am I hearing God clearly? Because if I get it wrong, the consequences are I die. I want you to hear the weight of that. Now, 
even in light of that, this is still a good moment. But these disciples, they urge him not to go. They warn him about what may happen here. But this is just such an incredible story of the impact that Paul has made on these people's lives. They go with him to the beach. They go out to see him set sail. And here they honor him. They kneel down and they pray over him. And they beseech the Lord that whatever might happen, though we perhaps think we have a better grasp of God's will than Paul, Lord, we want you to bless him. We want you to minister to him. We want you to show him the right path to walk. I would argue that's maturity on display for them. Now, Paul sets sail from Tyre, and we lead into some more tension here for Paul. Look at the following verses, 7 through 12. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Well, our passage leads us into some more tension for Paul, doesn't it? See, his journey continues and they arrive at Caesarea and there they stay with Philip. And if this name sounds familiar, Philip is one of the early leaders of the church. He's one of the seven men chosen as servant leaders of the early church in Acts 6. He's one of the evangelists that we see in the early story of Acts. He's actually the guy who not only takes the gospel to Samaria, but if you remember the Ethiopian eunuch, He's the one who shared the gospel with him and baptized him. So this is a man who is of some renown, and he pops back up in our story. Paul's staying with him. And while Paul's staying here with him, we've got this just theme of prophecy going. People are wanting to tell Paul what they know. They've heard something from the Lord, and they go to Paul, and they speak to him. We have this prophet named Agabus who comes down from Judea, and we, we don't really know anything about him. He doesn't really appear in the scriptures before this. We don't know a whole lot about him. There's nothing historically we can find. He's just a guy who shows up and Luke made this note that he has something to tell Paul. What he has to tell Paul is not good news. He grabs Paul by the belt, right? And if you wear a belt, if somebody grabs you by the belt, you got their attention, right? You're paying attention to what they have to say to you. He grabs Paul's belt and he makes this prophecy that Paul is going to experience great difficulty when he gets to Jerusalem. He tells him he's going to be bound, that he's going to be captured, he's going to be given over to the Gentiles, that things are not going to go well for him. Now, as you can imagine, that's not good news to everyone who's around Paul right now, right? You've just heard that your friend, if you're Luke, this man that you've walked with for decades is going to be bound and put in captivity when he gets to Jerusalem. You've got Philip, who's one of the servant leaders of the church, who is someone that is a key leader, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be the one who let him go to Jerusalem. <laughs> They're going to kick me out of the church. This is going to be terrible. Everyone there is thinking, this can't happen. We, we can't let him go to Jerusalem. And so they beg. I want you to notice here that they say, we again. Luke is among them, begging him. 
Don't go, Paul. You can't do this. We, we've heard clearly from the Lord that there's danger here, that there's warnings you should not go. I mean, this isn't good. Paul, you cannot go. You know, as I studied this, I found that this was, this is a very interesting section of Scripture, isn't it? We've got some drama, some tension, right? It seems like this is going to be, you know, some fun mini-series. But as we look at this, you might be wondering, what's the point of this passage? Why, why did Luke include this here in the Scriptures, right? Beyond just the, the initial Sunday school answer we give, of, well, God told him to put it in there. Well, yes, thank you. But what was the importance? Why did God want us to hear this passage of Scriptures? What did he want us to learn from this? Well, our point for this section is that we're seeing our view of God's will. You see, we, we see this practiced in our lives, in our world today. The very same actions disciples have here. You see, the disciples, they act throughout this passage like they understand God's will perfectly. Each section shows us with people who are urging Paul to stay away from Jerusalem. They're telling Paul, you cannot go to Jerusalem. You just can't go. Paul, we, we've got the Holy Spirit telling us that dangers are going to come upon you when you go. You've got this man who prophesies, a literal prophet, coming down to Paul saying, when you go to Jerusalem, things are going to be hard for you. You're going to be bound. You're going to be captive. You're going to be held by people that don't care about the things we believe. Things are going to go poorly for you. It seems like everyone's saying, Paul... You can't go. You don't do it. You're not hearing God clearly. Well, why is it that they're saying this? We could give some surface level answers. They care about Paul. You know, they, they want to continue his ministry. They want to be blessed by him. You know, all those great things. You know, he's a great preacher. They want to miss that. And those are surface level answers because those don't really answer the why here. You see, I would submit to you that they have a misunderstanding of God's will and what it's supposed to look like. They have a misunderstanding of God's will and what it's supposed to look like. I want you to consider this idea. This is something that we find pretty commonly in our culture today. This is what most people believe about God and His will. We believe that if something bad happens to us, then we must be out of God's will. This is how the world looks at God. This is how most people think when you start talking about God's will and his plan for their life. If bad things are happening to them, then they have to be out of God's will. If bad things are happening, then you must not be following God and doing what he wants. Because after all, God loves you. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to prosper, right? Wrong. You see, this isn't an original thought to us. This is something we carry over from these ancient cultures here. This is a pagan tradition that we've just adopted in our own world. Did you know that the Romans worshipped dozens of gods? Lowercase g, right? The temples that Paul preached in for the Romans were places of worship for these lowercase gods. Dozens of gods in here. They had one for an unknown god. Just in case they missed one, they don't want to tick him off, right? Because the worst thing you could do is make, make one of the gods mad. Why were they worried about worshiping these gods and making them mad? Were they completely, devoutly religious? Maybe. Were they just ritualistic? This is what you do? Maybe. Maybe. I think the real answer is that Romans understood something. 
Their worldview was that if bad things are happening to them, that must mean that a God is mad at them. And if bad things are happening to you, that means there's a God who's angry at you. And if there's a God who's angry at you, you better go make an offering to him so you get him off your back. Right? Once those gods are satisfied and happy with you, then bad things will stop. It sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? It sounds like the wildest thing you've ever heard. You think there's no way that can be true. Yet throughout history, we see the Romans, we see the Greeks, we see many cultures throughout history worship in this way. We're going to offer worship to all gods simply because we don't want to take the chance that one of them is angry with us and punishes us for our lack of worship. In our culture today, we, we continue that same thought. We don't have many gods like that. We're not, most people aren't saying, well, I hope the Christian God's okay with me, and I hope the Jewish God is fine with me, and I hope the God of Islam's fine with me. Most people don't function like that. But what they do think, how they do act, how you and I are guilty of acting, is we say bad things are happening to us, so the God that we worship must be dissatisfied with us. Because our worldview is built around this reality that if God loves us, then all must be good. You see, we are just like the people we've seen in this passage. We believe or we at least act practically that if God is God's will for us, if God has a will, a plan for us, then it's got to be something that's good and perfect and righteous. What we're saying is that we think that God's will for us must be something that is easy and simple and light. You see, we find struggles when we're on this path that God's will is taking us, and that path leads us into suffering. That's when we struggle. That's when we rail to the skies. God, do you love me? Are you even there? Do you even care? We truly think things like, God wants me to be happy. So if I'm not happy, then I'm not in his will, right? We truly believe things like, God doesn't want me to suffer. So if I'm suffering, I've taken a wrong turn somewhere. God doesn't want me on this path. These are lies from Satan himself that are intended to lead us astray in this life. Oswald Chambers wrote this. To choose to suffer means that there is something wrong. To choose God's will means that even if it means suffering, it's a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chose suffering. He chooses God's will as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. Think clearly about this. If we know there's suffering and hardship before us, do any of us willingly choose the path of suffering and hardship? No! No one in their right mind would take that path. Hey, this path requires you to hike up the mountain. This one, you ride the elevator. Which one are we taking? The elevator. Ten times out of ten, we're taking the elevator. No one in their right mind would willingly choose suffering. Yet, if we trust in the Lord and His will, His plan for us, then we will submit to His will, we will walk in His path, even if it takes us through suffering. Not because we're 
masochist and we desire pain and difficulty, but rather because we trust the one who's created us, who knows us, and who is leading us through this path. We trust that our suffering has purpose, that it has meaning. We recognize the reality that though we suffer in this life, this life is not the end. That it produces, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, a peculiar fruit in us. Something that shapes us, that sanctifies us, that leads to greater rewards in the future kingdom. The truth is, is that our understanding... Our view of God's will, it, it cannot be conditional on our happiness, our sense of completeness. We can't say we're in God's will when we're happy and satisfied. We can't say we're in God's will when things are good for us. We might be, but the truth is, is that if our circumstances determine our comfort and our obedience to God, then we are being led astray. Our path towards obedience may incur a cost from us. It may indeed require us to suffer or to experience hardship for the cause of Christ. If we're willing to be honest with one another, we recognize that it's probably already done that for us in our lives. We've already experienced some type of hardship because we follow Jesus. Despite this, we live in a, in a world and a tension where we're striving to pursue God's will. We want to follow His will and His path for us, but we're not always sure if we found it, right? If we're doing what the people in this passage have done and we're defining our success at finding God's will by how things are going, then we're not really sure. If things are going well, then maybe we've hit the mark. But if things are going poorly, then maybe we've missed it, right? We just don't know. How do we live in this tension? How do we navigate through this? Well, I believe Paul understands how to navigate through this. I believe Paul recognizes the tension we live in and wants to speak towards that. And very practically here at the end, I'm going to give you some wisdom from the church fathers to wrestle with of how do we find and discover God's will. You see, our next point is that we're going to see God's view of his will. We're going to see God's view of his will. Look with me at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So Paul begins to finally give us insight into what he's thinking here. He's grieved over the pain of the situation. And he's heartbroken over this. He recognizes that though he is getting some bad advice in his opinion, that this is motivated perhaps by love and affection towards him. These people love him. They see him making what they think is a disastrous mistake, and they say, you've got to turn around. But he understands this pain that they're feeling. He's loved them and served them for many years, and it's an emotional moment for him. 
He knows that he is not likely to come back from Jerusalem. This is where his story is going to end. He is aware of that reality, and he says, I've got to go. I've got to go. You see, I think the thing that is most painful for Paul here is not that they are grieving him and encouraging him not to go, but simply their lack of faith in the Lord here. You see, he's been very clearly told that pain is coming. He's been led by the Holy Spirit to go here to Jerusalem. Even though pain and difficulty is coming, you must go. He's being led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. He's striving to be faithful to the Lord. He's striving to be obedient to the call that God has put before him. But you've got many of these people here telling him not to go. They are essentially asking Paul, do not be faithful to the calling God's put on your life. Stay here with us. Paul is committed to faithfulness. He's committed to following God's will, even if it takes him into suffering. You see, he's ready for it because God has called him to this. See, the disciples hear this. They recognize that he is ready to do this. That nothing they're going to say is going to change their mind. It's going to change his mind. And they together proclaim that the will of the Lord will be done. It's almost like a benediction they're offering over him. We don't know if you're right, Paul. We think you're wrong and you need to stay here with us. Don't go to Jerusalem. But God is greater and more sovereign than we. He is the one who knows how this story is going to end. And so we trust that the will of the Lord will be done here. You see, we see Paul and the disciples respond with something here. They respond with recognizing that, they, one, they have to trust in the Lord. This is built on that foundation of trust. We trust that God is good, that he loves his people, that he cares for us. But also, they're resting in the fact that God is sovereign over his world. Here's the funny thing about trying to wrestle with and discover God's will. We just wring ourselves out trying to find and think through certain things. Like if I choose this, would, would, would I be in God's will? If I choose that, would I be out of his will? Like what, what's the right choice? Yet the funny thing is, you and I are nowhere near powerful enough to mess up God's plan for this world. Not a one of you is going to change God's plan and his will for this world. He is so sovereign and mighty over us that what are we going to do to wreck his plan for the world? No, this doesn't mean we go live recklessly and, and live in a way that is dishonoring to him. But to sit here and have the audacity that we're going to change and wreck God's plan for this world, it's ludicrous. We might want to step down from the throne and let Jesus take his place back on the throne. That's the zero-sum truth of it. That no matter what we do, no matter what we choose, God will have his will in this world accomplished. What is his will? What does he desire to have happen? He desires for all the nations to see, hear, and respond to the glory of the name of King Jesus Trusting in him, following him, being baptized in his name, living lives that proclaim the glory of King Jesus. I would ask you, is there anything that you can do 
that would wreck that great plan God has? No. Is there anything that I'm going to do that's going to wreck that? No. We're not going to destroy God's big plan in this world if we have orange juice instead of milk for breakfast, right? Like it's not that crucial of a decision. But we do want to wrestle with and consider how do we actually live out God's commands? You see, that's what we're trying to get at when we think about discovering God's will. It's not how do we get to the end of this story perfectly how God intended, but rather how do we live in every moment of every day bringing honor and glory to God? How do we make decisions that make much of the name of Jesus? How do we do that? Well, I think very practically, I want to bring you some wisdom for the church fathers. You'll see in this next slide, how are we supposed to discover God's will? How are we supposed to determine his will? Well, there are kind of four progressive gates we have to go through, right? We got to go through each one of these to determine if we're on the path towards God's will. You see, the first one is that we look at God's word right? We look at God's Word, and we look at this Bible. We study it. We read it. We seek to understand it. We look at it, and we go, is there a verse that says, Walter, you must do this? Well, there's not, by the way. (laughs) There's not a single passage of scriptures that's written to my name, so I'm off the hook there. Take a deep breath, and then I must take a step back and go, what does God expect from His people in His Word? What's he expect, right? Because that's laying out some basic activities and things I need to be doing. That's laying out some ways to live and some ways I shouldn't live. So we start with God's word, right? What does it say? What does the word of the Lord say we're to do? One of the next things we have to consider is what is the Holy Spirit telling us? This is where this idea of conviction of sin comes into play. What is the spirit of the Lord telling us? I, won't, I don't know what that looks like to you in your life, right? But what do you feel on the inside? The Lord is guiding you and directing you. Maybe you have an audible voice. Maybe you just have a peace about a decision, right? Whatever it might be, what is the Lord telling you? We continue on, and we have to just wrestle with our conscience, right? What's right and what's wrong? What is the right thing to do in this situation? What is the one that puts the most glory for the Lord that is the right thing for most people here? And then finally, we seek godly counsel. We seek godly counsel. Who are the people that we know love the Lord, that are passionate about Jesus, we trust, we can go, hey, I've got a decision I need to make. What is it that I'm, you think I should do? Give me some advice. Tell me what you're thinking when I tell you this. In a perfect world, if we're going to make a decision, all of those will line up, right? Everything's good. The only one that might be optional here is that godly counsel because, frankly, sometimes people think you're an idiot, and that's Okay. Clearly, some of the people in this passage thought Paul was unwise. Yet, as we see from his preceding journeys, when he felt that call to go from Ephesus to Jerusalem, what happened? Did anybody in Ephesus tell him to stay? No. Did anybody before he got to Tyre tell him to stay? No. Did even Agabus tell him to stay? Agabus didn't say anything. Agabus just said, by the way, my friend, it's going to be hard when you get there. 
I would submit that Paul really did get some godly counsel along the way. And until he got to Tyre, no one said anything different. What do we do with that? This is helpful, right? I know this is helpful to kind of think through this, but what's the foundation piece of this? How do we know these things work? It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of trusting in the one who has created and written this word. It's trusting that he has our best interests at heart. It's trusting that him, the holy portion of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is going to work in our lives and tell us truth from lies. He's going to convict us of sin. He's going to show us the path to go. It's trusting that the Lord transforms our hearts and minds so that we can work from a conscience that is defined by his standing. It's going to trust that there are godly people who listen to Jesus, who know him, who are going to give us good advice. The centerpiece of this is trust. But none of it matters if we don't trust the one who created the heavens and the earth. None of it matters if we don't trust the one who wrote this word. None of it matters if we don't trust the one who has sent the Holy Spirit to us. None of it matters if we don't trust the one who redeemed our conscience and gave us godly counsel. It all hinges upon trusting in the God of the universe. And so today as you're considering, how do I discover God's will? How do I know his plan for me in this world? How do I find a path forward? It begins with trust. It begins with trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It begins with repenting of your sin, crying out to God that I'm a broken sinner in need of a Savior, and that you are the only one who can redeem and save. It begins with trusting that if you lay down your life before the Lord, that he will raise you up to a new life, not only in this earth, but in the next life to come. It hinges upon trust. And I would ask you this question today. Do you trust in the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? The answer is yes, and praise God. To him be the glory. The answer is no, then you must choose to trust in Jesus today. I want to take a moment and pray for us. And I want to give you a moment to listen, to receive counsel from the Holy Spirit, from your conscience. You've heard from God's Word today. Let the Spirit speak to you and give you counsel and guidance. Let your conscience guide you and direct you. If you're here and you need godly counsel, then come speak to someone, myself, Pastor Brian, someone you trust in this congregation to receive that counsel. But the most important thing you can do today is trust in Jesus and praise Him for His goodness and glory. If you would, would you go to Lord in prayer with me? Father, as we come to you today in prayer, we come to you seeking trust. I don't know where everyone is in their journey with you, Lord. Maybe some haven't begun it. Maybe some are on this journey with you. Maybe they've only been here a short while. I don't know, Lord. But what I do know is that for every one of us, 
We are seeking trust. We're seeking something that we can anchor ourselves to, something we can cling to, something we know will not let us down. Father, as we're looking for something to trust, as we're trying to find what it is that might guide us, direct us, encourage us, strengthen us in this life, the only thing that I believe is here that is present for us to trust, that is unfailing, is you, Lord. It is you alone. It is your son, Jesus, who has come for his people, who has bore the weight of sin and shame on our behalf, living a perfect life that we could not, while going to the cross an innocent man, enduring pain, suffering, and hardship so that we might be yours if we would trust in you. Not only did he bring forgiveness to this life, but he showed us that he has power over life and death through his resurrection three days later. That he is truly all-powerful, that nothing can stop him. Even death itself could not hold him, Lord. This is a beautiful message of hope for us today. That if we've been let down by the things of this world, if we've failed, if we've struggled, if we've fought against you, Lord, whatever it might be that has brought us here to this moment, the answer for us is trust. That we trust that you are a good God who is redeeming people, who is working his power out in our lives, who's moving things in this world for your good and your glory. And Lord, in all that, If your will is being done, Lord, then ultimately we prosper. Lord, if your will is being done in this world, then ultimately it is for our good and your glory. Lord, remind us of that. Show us that today. As we proclaim these words that we'll sing here, let us sing, let us proclaim them clearly and loudly, trusting and resting in you, Father. Thank you for who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.